Dotnet Pod. As always, it's me, Julian. So two weeks ago, we talked about voting and all the flaws within the system. And one major thing that we talked about was voter suppression in terms of voter ID laws and everything like that. But there's a very new kind of voter suppression that's happening right now, and that's because of what everything else seems to be because of coronavirus. So elections, obviously I've never voted, some of you have never voted. Elections, you go to this local place, there are attendants working there, and you all have to vote. But since the country's not doing well with coronavirus and voting involves being together with many people, that's going to be dangerous. Usually a typical poll worker encounters 700 people while voting, and each voter encounters 20 people while voting. And during coronavirus, I don't know if you're seeing one person or a couple people, but you really shouldn't be coming into contact with 700 people. That's very dangerous, especially in some of the states where coronavirus numbers are exploding right now and have hit record highs. So listen to this video of a poll worker talking about all the risks associated with being a poll worker and voting in person this year. I never thought I'd say this in my time, but this really scares me, this kind of thing. I never thought I'd see it. For McGee and a majority of poll workers, they're retired in their 60s or 70s, and health experts say this age group is among some of the most vulnerable to the virus. Even if we have a line of 10 people, how are we going to keep everybody, you know, safe from the germs? So, based on what she just said, people need to be able to stay safe and vote by mail because you shouldn't have to choose between staying safe and keeping others safe and exercising your democratic right to vote. But don't tell that to the governor of Mississippi, who basically told people not to vote. You know, I hope people feel safe but uh, to go out and vote. But if they don't, you know, the number one thing is their safety should be number one. So if they don't, um, then, then don't go out and vote. You know, you know I don't know if like, I've ever heard myself say that. But, but, you know, if you didn't feel safe, then I wouldn't do that. So the one thing that helps people both vote and keeps the community safe is mail-in voting. But usually people just go in place, so we don't really have mail-in voting systems set up. Mail-in voting would cost $4 billion to properly run, but the federal government has only given $400 million, only 10% of what the cost would really be. And another example of people wanting to vote by mail for obvious reasons more is that four years ago, Pennsylvania had basically 100,000 people who wanted mail-in ballots, but this year, as of like two months ago, almost two million people have requested them. And the localities can't really handle that, so they need the government assistance. But the government in a lot of states and the federal government aren't giving assistance because Trump and many Republicans are saying that voting by mail is widely fraudulent. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. They go and collect them. They're fraudulent in many cases. The mail ballots are corrupt, in my opinion. And they collect them, and they get people to go in and sign them, and then they, they're forgeries in many cases. It's a horrible thing. However, these claims that he's making are completely false. So first, some history around mail-in voting. First of all, mail-in voting is the same as absentee ballots, which people do every year. Voting by mail has been around since the Civil War, and in the last two federal elections, 25% of Americans have cast a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot, whatever you want to call it. And right now, people obviously want to be safe and vote, so 70% of people 
are in favor of letting anybody who wants to vote by mail vote by mail. We'll cover later why that number of the people who want to be able to vote by mail isn't being reflected in the politics. But for now, listen to this criticism. This is like the common criticism from Republicans about why mail-in voting is bad. And then uh, John Oliver, who's a comedian, just sort of explaining how ridiculous that argument is. The person that from the Republican side is Fox News host Janine Pirro. Think about the voter uh, registration records in states that have not been purged. By that I mean dead people have not been removed. You can request an absentee ballot in that name, have it mailed to a different address saying you moved, but you know the person's dead, and then say you're back at the old address and go and vote. Okay. While that might sound plausible to you at first, just think how many steps you'd have to take to successfully make that happen. First, you have to know a dead person. That's hard to do. They're antisocial. Then, you have to know that they were registered to vote when they were alive. Then, you have to fill out a form to request an absentee ballot be mailed to your address instead of theirs. Now, to do that, you'd likely have to redo their entire voter registration, which would require you to know personal information like their address, date of birth, the last four digits of their social security, and possibly their driver's license number and date when it was issued. But okay, let's say that you do all of this and you get their ballot in the mail. You might also have to know what the dead person's signature looks like to convincingly forge it because it could be compared to their signature already on file. And you had better hope that the notification of their death never reaches the elections office through any of the routes that it could, as despite what Just Janine would have you believe, voter rolls go through periodic list maintenance, including cross-checking social security death records. And having done all of this, and remember, told authorities where you live, if you're caught, you're risking several felonies, which in many states involve prison time, or to gain the grand total of one vote. It is a crime that's difficult, high risk, and low reward. It's as if, at the end of Ocean's 8, we learned that Sandra Bullock had gone to all the trouble of breaking into the Met Gala to steal a map of state quarters. Sandra, why? That's $12.50 worth of quarters. That's a complete waste of your time, Kate Blanchett's time, and most importantly, Rihanna's time. John Oliver is completely right. To suggest that people would really take all these risks and do all this stuff for one extra vote is ridiculous. In Oregon four years ago, out of two million votes that were cast by mail, only around 50 cases were suspected voter fraud. Not even voter fraud, just suspected, which is like 0.002%. It's basically negligible. This really isn't happening. It's kind of just something that the Republicans have made up because they have some idea in their mind that mail-in voting is good for Democrats even though there's really no evidence that suggests it would help one political party over another. It's really just good for democracy. So now going into the states, I mentioned that 70% of people want universal mail-in voting. Anybody who wants to vote by mail should be able to vote by mail, which seems obvious, but only five states allow universal mail-in voting right now. 29 states do let people request an absentee ballot for any reason, but it's still a lot of work to request an absentee ballot get it sent to your house, and then fill it out. Like That is more complicated than it should be. And 16 states require a specific reason for why you need an absentee ballot. And five of those states, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Mississippi, the classic states who would do this kind of thing, don't let fear of coronavirus be a valid reason to not go vote. So those five states, and one of them, Texas, is maybe a swing state in this election, so it especially matters. 
even though they all matter because voting and democracy matters. They're saying that if someone's scared of getting coronavirus, they're still going to make them either sacrifice their right to vote or make them sacrifice their safety by going in to vote. And I would also add that Texas, I mentioned it because it's becoming a swing state, but also Texas, their coronavirus numbers are now exploding. So it would be especially unsafe for everyone to go vote. And this seems like theoretical and far off, but we have a specific example. The Wisconsin primary from a few months ago, the Democratic governor tried to delay it because of coronavirus, wanted to keep people safe until a later date when they could really get ready to ramp up mail-in voting. But the Republican legislature and Supreme Court did not let him. And that was obviously bad because people didn't want to go vote because they didn't want to sacrifice their safety. And it was really difficult because in Milwaukee, which is by far the biggest city in Wisconsin, they went from 180 places where you could go vote to five, which obviously results in huge lines. And not just the lines, but hundreds of thousands of people in Wisconsin who requested mail-in ballots just didn't get one. That also happened in the Georgia primary. People would ask for mail-in ballots and think they were going to get one, and it just did not happen. Uh, listen to this voter in Milwaukee during that, um, during that voting day talk about her frustration while she's standing in line to vote. This is so wrong. This is just so wrong. This, this election should have been called off. You know, they're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other, but then one of the most important times... They're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. So that's obviously very frustrating. And this is bad because this could really affect our election coming up in November in really horrible ways. Also, it's just a bad and scary precedent to set that you can just supersede voters. The supersede voters, supersede voters, go back to that point. It's a bad precedent to set that you can just supersede voters' ability to vote and just make it dangerous for people to vote and not really give them a good way to vote while staying safe. So to solve this, the federal government immediately needs to provide money to localities to be able to ramp up their capacity to for people who go who want to go to vote to stay safe, but also to send everybody ballots so that everybody can who wants to can vote by mail. The, the outcome of this election and people's confidence in the validity of this election depends upon people being able to vote. So that's mail-in voting, and that's the problems with it, and that's what we need to do to make our election more valid and more just. So now we have a special guest, Mark Rush, who is actually not going to be that much about mail-in voting. It's a little bit going to be more about our episode two weeks ago relating to gerrymandering and voter suppression and voting and redistricting and all that good stuff. So Mark Rush is a professor at Washington and Lee University, and he's done tons of research about democracy, voting rights, and constitutional law, and has done a lot of work around making our election system more efficient and more fair, and he has some interesting ideas that we should think about about how to change our election system to more accurately represent the voters. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. 
Um, so can you just give like a brief overview of some of the work that you've done? Sure. Um, I mean, I'll just introduce myself, I guess. Uh, my name is Mark Brush. I uh, teach politics and I teach law at Washington and Lee University. I've uh, been here uh, for quite some time, uh, since 1990. I took my graduate degree at Johns Hopkins and my undergraduate degree at Harvard. And it was in graduate school where I originally became interested in uh, voting rights, uh, redistricting, uh, and, you know, gerrymandering in particular, among other things. Uh, what I was fascinated by when I first uh, studied this was really the uh, the difference of opinion, I mean, the radical difference between uh, the knowledge we had gathered from political science about how voters vote, um, how they, you know, whether they're hardcore Democrats or Republican, whether they're fluid, and um, the rhetoric and thinking that characterized most uh, court decisions dealing with voting rights, and respect, you know, partisan gerrymandering and so forth. There's a difference between partisan and racial gerrymandering. Talk about talk a little bit about that. Um, but that's how I originally got involved in this field. Uh, right now, I also direct our Center for International Education. So a lot of the, the work and writing I do has a comparative aspect to it. I'm doing some writing now on freedom of religion and freedom of speech and comparative perspective. Um, and occasionally I do fantasy baseball stuff. So that's a little bit about me. Um, yeah, can you expand a little bit on... Like there you mentioned like the difference between what political science tells us about the voting and then what the rhetoric is. Can you expand on that a little bit and tell us what those two sides are? Sure. Well, let, me, let me begin with the simpler of the two. If you read any Supreme Court case uh, going back now 40, 50 years, um, the judicial proceedings, you read the briefs and whatnot, at least those who you know, make gerrymandering claims, um, are based on the assumption that voters are Democratic or Republican, period. Uh, they're as dyed-in-the-wool partisans as they might be, as their race would be, for example, and that's the comparison. Um, and, um, you know, trying to gerrymander people on the basis of race is radically different than doing it on the basis of partisanship, no matter where you move me. My race isn't going to change. Um, and so going back to the era of Jim Crow and just, uh, you know, really terrible racial discrimination in the country, we saw throughout that uh, legislators, white legislators, would go and look to divide up minority voting power, whether it be black or Hispanic out east or, you know, Hispanic in the south and southwest, whatever. But uh, they would look to divide up populations of concentrated populations of minority voters so that they would not be able to function as a majority in any legislative district. And so they would just be wasting their votes. They wouldn't gain any representation. And, and that would be that. The uh, assumption dealing with partisan gerrymandering is similar, that I can look at this town or this county and say it's Democratic or Republican, period. Um, and that's not as accurate, uh, depending on who the candidates are. Uh, depending on uh, what the election is, whether, say, it's governor or president or state legislator or, or whatnot, uh, you may find that the partisan composition of that town or that district, that area changes, in many cases, uh, due to who the candidates are. And uh, my original research showed way back that, yes, if you change candidates, um, 
a town or whatever, a district, uh, will probably change its partisan profile. It may not go from Democratic to Republican completely, but it could become much more competitive if an incumbent retires, because what we see is a lot of people just come out and vote for their incumbents. And similarly, what I showed is that um, every 10 years, when states have to redraw voting districts, uh, the towns or the counties, whatever, that have moved from one district to another would change because um, if they were in a Democratic district and they moved to a Republican incumbent district, you would see a tremendous uptick in the Republican vote and vice versa. Now, this has changed a little bit now. Uh, we're going through an era of uh, really divisive political partisanship. So I think you do see a greater tendency for people to vote Democratic or Republican up and down the entire ticket, if you will. Um, but still, uh, partisanship tends to change from era to era and what the circumstances are, whereas race does not. And so you really have to analyze the two problems of racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering. Yeah. So you you talked about the difference between racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering. Um, oftentimes, like minorities tend to live in cities and white people tend to live in the suburbs. Does that like and minorities tend to be more Democrats and white people tend to be Republicans more often? Do you think that partisan gerrymandering is just ends up being racial because that's who's in the political parties? Or do you think that when racial gerrymandering takes place now, it's because people are trying to do it racially? Well, I think there's no question race and partisanship over that. And you're right. The, 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 you know, the patterns you describe are generally pretty accurate across the country. Um, but, you know, also over time, we don't know, or right now we can't really know, uh, what the voters' true partisanship is because what you find now is that since all of our elections pretty much, except for like maybe city elections or town elections in some cases, but, you know, it's, it's a... It's, a, it's an accurate generalization to say that across the country, uh, we elect people one way. It's with the winner-take-all system. Whoever gets the most votes in a state legislative or state senate or congressional district, whatever it is, whoever gets the most vote wins, regardless of how many candidates there are. And so what this does is it caters to uh, the, the two major parties, the big parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. And then we know that incumbents across the country are essentially unbeatable. They have a tremendous advantage in terms of money and advertising and whatnot. So once you get an incumbent into one of these districts, uh, the game's basically over. Again, there are examples recently of changes, and we see some upsets occurring right now across the country. But in general, an incumbent is about as safe in office as you can imagine. So as a result, um, voters don't really have any choice right now. Uh, even when districts are drawn by nonpartisan districting commissions, even when they are drawn as they have to be in accordance with the Voting Rights Act to make sure that minority voters are able to elect candidates of their choice, if you will. Um, once those incumbent candidates get elected, uh, you tend to find that elections become much less competitive. Challengers aren't going to take on strong incumbents because they're going to lose, usually. Uh, and so they'll wait until the incumbent retires or something, and then you'll have a competitive election. And then once again, the district will become uh, a blowout election. And you see this across the country. Um, turnout in legislative elections is terrible. 
frequently less than 50%. Um, here in Virginia, where I live and work, um, it's, you know, frequently you know, 40% or less. If you look across the state, um, the incumbents, the number of incumbents who go unchallenged is remarkable. And so as a result, you really don't know what people's Democratic or Republican partisanship is because they really don't have much of a choice on election day. So when we use a nonpartisan districting commission or whatnot, when the districts are drawn, you might have legislation. People might say there's a gerrymander and they'll go to court to challenge it or whatever. But once all the lines are fixed and agreed upon, um, those districts don't look a whole lot different in terms of competition. Voters don't have much of a choice. And so there is a solution to this. We can change the way we vote. Um, there are places across the country, usually cities and towns, places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, San Francisco. Um, here in Virginia, the state legislature just allowed this, where instead of simply having a bunch of little districts where you have winner-take-all, people get to vote for four or five candidates. They get to rank them. And um, once you give voters that sort of opportunity, then you'll find that, you know, people who might traditionally always have been Democratic or Republican or whatever, uh, they might with, say, the third choice vote. If I'm a Democrat, I might pick the Republican because he or she's a good guy or, you know, they've done good work, whatever, uh, and my neighbor. Um, and you will find that, you know, black voters might support white candidates, white candidates might support Black, I'm sorry, white voters might support black candidates. I mean, people will cross racial lines, they will cross partisan lines. And what you will also begin to see is that maybe where in those white suburbs that tend to vote Republican, they now have, say, some parts of cities mixed in with these bigger districts. Uh, you'll see some crossover voting, and we'll see. Are, are these voters in their suburbs really Republican, or they just have nobody else to vote for? And not all those Democratic voters in the cities might actually have a chance to vote for Republican now and then. And they might do it. And um, so there is a way to fix this. Uh, but it's just very hard to uh, get legislative incumbents to want to do this because it would make campaigning more competitive. Yeah. How exactly does ranked choice voting work? Is it like, does it just the one candidate win, but you get to rank all the other ones? Or are there multiple no. winners? You would have maybe a district with five seats. Oh, okay. Um, and so here in Virginia, we've recommended uh, our state House of Delegates, the lower chamber, has 100 winner-take-all districts. You could turn that into 20 districts, each with five each which would send five representatives to the state legislature. You could have as many run as you want, and the voters would just enumerate their favorites from one, two, three, all the way down. Um, and with computers, it's easy not only to do that, but to count those votes very quickly. Um, and so it would give you an opportunity, say, to... You know, vote for maybe a uh, minority party candidate, a green candidate or, or whatever, um, somebody who might not have a chance of getting elected otherwise, but maybe they'd be the fifth candidate elected because all the Democrats and Republicans, after voting for their own favorite candidates, might say, yeah, we need an environmentalist in here. And they throw in the fifth vote and they get elected. And so as a result, uh, it's a basic mathematical formula if you have, you know, five seats and there's a hundred voters, then each, you know, in order to get elected, you need about 20, 20 votes. The math is a little more involved in that. And that's what it works out to be. Uh, there's a threshold and uh, one, the, once five candidates cross that they're elected. And it's been shown um, in the cities there where it's used. You know, in other countries that use it, you get a, a better, more diverse uh, legislature 
and you get much more competitive elections. People actually go to vote because they know they have a choice. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so in that scenario, is like there's an open primary. Everyone who's running is in like the same general election. You know, essentially, yeah, you only have to have one election. It will be like an open primary. And that's what we, this would actually make this much less expensive. Because instead of having to have your Democratic primary and your Republican primary, and then basically to have to vote twice yeah. in a primary election and a general election, you only need one. Uh, because all the candidates would there just vote for them. So instead of knocking, knocking out everybody but one, Democrat and Republican, in the first round, you would just enumerate the candidates uh, much cheaper. So therefore, it saved the state. So it saved the municipalities a whole lot of money. Because they, I mean, essentially, you'd be cutting the cost of elections in half. Um, and you'd be giving voters a much better choice. Do you think that ranked choice voting would help decrease partisanship and decrease, like, the polarization in our politics? Because when there's, like, a district with one winner, you need, like, 51% of the votes so you can alienate 49% of the people. But right. in ranked choice voting, you would want to be everybody else's, like, second choice or third choice. Exactly. You know, so um, it would give me an incentive to build bridges toward the candidates of other parties as well. I wouldn't need to be so polarized because, uh, as you said, uh, in order to get elected, I might need somebody's third choice or fourth choice vote. And um, so, yeah, I'm a Republican, but there's a number of green voters in my district. Uh, I need to be a little more, you know, solicitous towards them. So, yes, it could lead, it could actually build bridges if we stop polarization. Um, and maybe even counteractive. So, you know, under the circumstances of our current elections, it, it's really not a bad thing to do. And, and again, everybody can count. Yeah. Not rocket science. All you have to do. And if you only have one candidate you like, just put a one in that seat. You don't have to vote for them all. So it works for everybody. Oh, interesting. Um, so really quickly, you mentioned that you do some fantasy sports work. Who will be the best fantasy football player this year, assuming the season starts and ends? <laughs> I haven't really even turned to football yet. Um, I guess it kind of depends on your league. Uh, I still think you have to go with running backs, but more and more the wide receivers are becoming more valuable. So it's hard to say. It looks like Saquon Barkley is still sitting up there as kind of the consensus number one. Quarterbacks are now cheap, which is remarkable. When the sport first started, they weren't. But quarterbacks, in the nature of the game, they can throw so many touchdowns now. Um you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable to see. I think, um, you know, things to look for. I think, uh, what, Houston traded DeAndre Hopkins to the Cardinals. Yeah. So, uh, what's his name? Taylor's going to be a good buy this year, I think. Uh, he's got a better, and he has David Johnson there coming out of his backfield. So the Cardinals can do pretty good. In terms of who the overall number one is, I don't know. But, you know, you can go pretty deep, pick up Taylor as your quarterback and do just fine and have an all-star, uh, wide receiver and running back cast. So. But I haven't looked at it that close. I hope you play it off. I need something else to do. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is and how it contri- and how it like contributes to modern-day gerrymandering and redistricting? Well, it's, Section 2 is designed to stop uh, gerrymandering. The two key parts, well, the Voting Rights Act as a whole was very important. Um, parts of it eliminated... You know, practices such as literacy tests and poll taxes, which were designed to keep minorities and poor folks from voting. And then you had sections two and five. Um, Let me get to section two. Section five was key. It was a preclearance provision, uh, which was based on um, 
a set of conditions in Section 4, which back in the 60s said any area of the country um, which failed to achieve a certain level of turnout where minority voters turned out beneath a certain level and so forth. So it basically came up with a statistical way to, or an anal- uh, a data-driven way to identify the areas of the country where minority voters are being discriminated against. And it said, any place that fits these criteria cannot make any changes to its voting laws without getting preclearance uh-huh. from Washington, D.C. And um, in a Supreme Court case, uh, a couple of years back, the Shelby case, um, the court struck down uh, Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, essentially saying uh, the data were antiquated. And the argument was uh, akin to saying you, you wouldn't sell your house today based on what it cost in 1965. Yeah. So therefore, we should not be applying laws today based on data from 1965. Essentially, that was the argument. And it's quite reasonable. The problem is, is that Congress wasn't, given its partisanship right now, Congress wasn't about to say, okay, fine, we'll go do a new analysis and update the voting rights act. So essentially, uh, that preclearance provision has disappeared. And what you found, unfortunately, essentially throughout the old Confederacy, um, which is where Section 5 really applied, uh, you've seen a host of just really discriminatory practices pop up in the wake of that decision in the last five years. Uh, it's really remarkable. It's become harder to register to vote. They have established uh, requirements for people to have voter identification, but we don't give out voter identification. Many people don't drive. And so, again, this becomes a, a, a barrier to voting. Uh, you see that throughout the old South, um, it is astonishing in areas where there are concentrations of minority voters. Uh, the state has closed voting precincts. So as a result, you have these long, long lines that you didn't have before, and they all tend to be in places where either the poor or especially minority voters live. So as a result, you've seen this less subtle but clearly systemic discrimination rising up. We have rules that clearly have a disproportionately discriminatory impact on minority voters. So that's the shame of that. It's unfortunate uh, Congress could do something about it, but it's so divided right now it's not doing anything. Well, section five, that was one really key provision. The other one was section two, which is broader. Um, it, you know, states that, um, you know, election law, voting districts, whatnot, must be administered in a way to make sure that minority voters have a fair opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. And so this is essentially, especially uh, a barrier against racial gerrymandering, because if you carve up minority voters into blocks where they can't be a, uh, comprise a majority and elect one of their own, then you are denying them a fair opportunity to elect a candidate. And so the result of both of these, Section 2 and Section 5, but now Section 2, has been to require states to draw, draw if, if it's possible, to draw the winner-take-all districts in a way that would ensure that as many minority voters as possible could have a shot at it. Yeah. Casting ballot. Uh, it's worked. Um, you have seen that thanks to this, there are uh, black, Hispanic, Asian members of state legislatures, Congress, and so forth. But not as many as we might have because uh, voters of particular ethnicities don't all tend to pack themselves into that, you know, close geographic areas. And so where you're able to do this, it works. 
Um, but where you can't, unless you want to draw a crazy district snaking all across the states, um, you know, a lot of minority voters are sort of left out there in the cold. Um, if you used ranked choice voting with bigger districts where you got to vote for more than one candidate, um, you'd be able to, you know, embrace more of the minority voters across the state and really give them a shot at a, you know, a fair percentage of the vote, uh, of the, uh, the state legislatures or congressional districts. Um, but the Constitution is silent with regard to which electoral system we would use. And so there is no constitutional basis to say that the win-take-all system is uh, unconstitutional or that the Constitution mandates that we change to another electoral system. At least not yet. I think you could make a creative constitutional argument for it. Uh, but that, that, would be a, that would be a long battle. Yeah. I mean, it's worth it, I think. But you need someone to take up. Yeah. Um, so something else I want to talk about is that like ranked choice voting, you talked about how it would help third party candidates. And something else that I know that you've thought about is the weakening of political parties. So what exactly is this? And do you think that's good or bad? The weakening of political parties? I'll, I'll elaborate. So I think I read that you said something about this. But my understanding is that like back in like the old days, like before I was alive, like the president, presidential candidates were chosen by like the party establishment. And like, there wasn't even all the time, like primary voters. And then people would just vote between the two candidates that had been like appointed by the party. But now you have this dynamic where like the party is supposed to be independent and the voters are supposed to choose for the party who the candidate is, which is why there was the big scandal in 2016 when the um, chair of the DNC was seen openly helping Hillary beat Bernie for the nomination. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the weakening of political parties and they would also be weakened more, I think, with the implementation of ranked choice voting, do you think that is positive or negative? You know, I think if you go through the literature, there is no consensus about whether ranked choice voting would strengthen or weaken parties. I mean, with ranked choice voting, you do vote for candidates, not parties. Um, And so... If a can, you know, the real question is how does a candidate get to where the Democratic or the Republican, or if you're in some other country, the Labor or the Conservative or, or, or whatever party label? Um, and this is, you know, is an ongoing, well, debate among scholars and, you know, argument or contest among political practitioners about who actually, uh, so to speak, owns the party and owns the party label. Is it the party organization? Is it the people who vote for the party? Is it the candidates or the legislators who bear the party name and so forth? Um, and as scholars debate what's a better model. Should the political parties be able to control who the candidates are and just run them out there, out there to the voters? Um, well, I suppose it depends on how you look at elections and political parties. There are some that argue that this is a better model because the political parties will pick more capable, probably more centrist or more you know, thoughtful candidates uh, than the primary process where you tend to have uh, the extremists and the activists vote. Primary participation tends to be quite low. And so, yes, as a result, you know, of this sort of process, um, you get a Donald Trump nominated. Um, You, for example, yes, you had uh, Debbie Washington Schultz working, you know, to help 
Hillary Clinton get elected because the higher ups in the Democratic Party thought she was the better candidate to beat Trump. Um, that's okay. Um, I think you have a pitched battle between um, those who want to maximize the amount of voter input at every step of the election process and those who want to maximize the quality of choice for the voters at the end of the election process. And so, um, you know, to have ranked choice voting, you would sort of remove this whole element of having, you know, primary voters dictate who will be the final election choices. Um, parties could still have primaries if they wanted to nominate their candidates for any election, uh, but there are other, other means uh, by which you could nominate, either getting a convention, uh, getting the support of a convention or whatnot. But regardless, once all the candidates were sort of on the ballot, uh, you'd only have one election. And so as a result, I think voters would have a better quality of choice. Again, this could weaken the parties in some ways or it could strengthen them. Um, you're in a district with where you where, where, where you are choosing, you know, say, three three candidates to go to the legislature. If you're wearing the same party label, you probably want to work together as a team. Yeah. Um, but you also then might want to moderate because you know that if the other party is strong, um, they can give you a good run for your money for those three seats. So you know you want to be able to reach out to those you know, the party's voters too. So it gives candidates a reason to try to strengthen their own party affiliations so they team, but also gives them a reason to reach out to other voters. So it both strengthens the party, I think, but also could cause them to moderate in the polarization. Um, until we actually implement it, we won't know yeah, yeah. how it would work here in the United States. And just because it works one way in Cambridge or San Francisco, because it works one way in a country such as Ireland, which has used it for nearly a century. That doesn't mean it's going to work that way across the United States. We don't know. Um, but we do know that um, voters, people in general, respond to incentives. If you live in a place and you can buy two cars, a black Volvo and a black Mercedes, well, you're going to be a black car owner. If suddenly you move to a place where, you know, you have a black Volvo and a red Mercedes, well, maybe you like red better. Or, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, your preferences will change based on the opportunities you have, the choices you're able to make. And so given that the way the American political system has worked now, especially in the last 50 years, um, I think it's reasonable to look at all the benefits of change in the way we elect candidates. Because um, if you look at what really ails the political system right now, going to a ranked choice voting system, I think we solve a lot of those problems. Yeah, interesting. Um, so my last question is, and this relates a little bit more to the um, voting rights situation. How do you think that mail-in voting, because of the pandemic, will affect? Do you think it will affect different people differently, and how do you think that will affect turnout? Tell you the truth, I think mail-in voting is its own hornet's nest, and the. The unfortunate fact is we are trying to establish or, you know, implement mail-in voting for the first time um, in an election that's going to take place under extraordinarily bizarre circumstances. That is COVID. Um, so I think there will be issues that will arise that we can't even anticipate yet. You know, how do you know that I filled out my own ballot? 
how do you know that I didn't collect all the neighbors' ballots, fill them all for them, and say, here, mail these in, right? Um, what happens if I mail my ballot on time and get it gets lost? Uh, um, all sorts of things like this are going to come up. Mail-in ballot, mail-in voting, I think, is absolutely laudable uh, from a small d democratic point of view. I mean, when you think about it, uh, we vote on Tuesdays. People have to take time off from work. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's a barrier to folks who have jobs that don't let them take time off in the middle of the day. Um, people are concerned about standing in lines to vote, especially in places like I described earlier, where they've been closing the precincts. Um, that's a real disincentive. You know, do I really want to go out, stand in line, and maybe catch the coronavirus when I can just send my ballot in? It's fair. Um, on the other hand, uh, one of the good things about standing in line and voting is that you vote on election day. You might mail in your ballot, like like absentee voting, you know, allows you know a couple of months early, and then discover your person you voted for you really hate, but you you've already counted your ballot. I mean, granted, you can wait and postmark your mail-in ballot on election day. It's fair, but it, it just raises some controversial issues um, that I think you can be sure will be an issue. You know, uh, after the election, if there, you know if there isn't a lopsided victory coming up in November, overall, I think generally it's a good thing. It overcomes many of the barriers that poorer voters and you know working class voters, whatever the case may be, face. But I don't have any doubts that it will generate its own controversy. Should it be tried? Yeah, I think we I think we should try to make it work for sure. Um, are there going to be problems? Sure, but there are problems that happen now that we don't even know about. Um, it's just that. We only notice these things when an election's really close, like 2000 in Florida or whatnot, and you start recounting votes and you see how much confusion or machine malfunction there can be. Uh, certainly, if we go to mail-in balloting, people will be looking very, very carefully to see if there's anything that seems to have gone wrong with it. I think it's worth trying, though. It's just it's unfortunate that we have to try it under these circumstances in, in a presidential election. It would be much better if we could try it local elections first, try to work out the kinks, the rest of the country learns from this, and then you roll out a nationwide implementation where you've been able to address some of the problems already here. The problems are going to show up in the middle of the election just cause controversy. Yeah. All right. Thank you. That's all I got. Happy to help out. Thank you so much for coming on, Mark. That was incredibly thought-provoking. Um, to everyone else, have a great week. Come back next week for our next episode on Wednesday. Every Wednesday, we release a new episode. And if you don't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars, hopefully, on Apple Podcasts. And go follow us on Instagram at We've Got Next Pod. Have a great week.